Thank you, praise team. It is well, it is well with my soul. I hope you can say that this morning. Amen. Hallelujah. It's a great privilege this morning to introduce to you one of our candidates for our interim pastor that we are looking at. This gentleman comes to us from sunny Florida. He has pastor churches in Florida, across the southeast, through the Midwest, and he has now joined with Interim Pastor Ministries and has a call on his life to go to churches that are having trouble and difficulties and uh, help them go through the, the, the storm and, and come out stronger on the other side. This gentleman also has a background in the military as a, uh, as a lawyer and attorney with uh, the United States Air Force, I believe. So if you will, if you will, welcome this morning to Central Church, Pastor Dan Worthman. As a transitional pastor, my mission is to support and strengthen churches through the seasons and the challenges of pastoral transition. You're in the midst of a pastoral transition. You, your, your last lead pastor has left. You have yet to search for a new lead pastor. That is a season that is filled with many possibilities. That is a season that is filled with many challenges. IPM, Interim Pastor Ministry, trains transitional pastors to come alongside a church in that kind of period. Let me give you just a little picture of this that, that maybe will help you. If you got on the Mississippi River here in Memphis and you went 1,200 miles north, you'd come to this bridge that's in this picture in the little town of LeClaire, Iowa. Now, you may have never heard of LeClaire, Iowa, but if you've ever watched that show American Pickers on the History Channel, LeClaire is where Mike and Frank live. LeClaire is where their little store, Antique Archaeology, is. I've been in there many times. I've never seen Danielle in there, but that's, that's another story. That's what LeClaire is known for now. That's not always what LeClaire has been famous for. 200 years ago, LeClaire was famous because it was the site along the Mississippi River of what was known as the Rock Island Rapids. At that point, the locks had not been constructed down near Davenport or Moline. The shipping channel had not been excavated. It was a dangerous place on the river. There were rapid currents. There were, uh, there were ridges of rocks jetting out into the river. And there was a drop in elevation between Leclerc and Davenport of about 20 feet, which is severe in that part of the river. That section of the Mississippi River was known as the place along the whole Mississippi River where more steamboats capsized and were wrecked than any other place on the river. So steamboats desiring to come north and steamboats desiring to go south, they, they began to stop in Leclerc if they were southbound and, and Davenport if they were northbound, and they would look for uh, somebody local, somebody who knew that section of the river somebody who knew where the rocks were and how the currents ran, somebody who was able to help them steer their ship safely through the Rock Island Rapids. And these gentlemen began to become known as Rapids pilots. 
A steamboat would pick up a rapids pilot at the beginning of the rapids, either in Leclerc or Davenport. That rapids pilot would take over the helm of the steamship, would lead the steamship safely through the hazards of the rapids, and then as they passed through the rapids, would turn the helm back over to the captain of the steamship, who would pilot the boat for the rest of the journey. That's in essence what we do through interim pastor ministries as, as transitional pastors. We are like those rapids pilots. We have pastoral experience. We have especially unique experience about the challenges, the hazards, but even the opportunities that churches have as they go through transitional uh, periods. And so we help churches navigate, for instance, the, the hazards of conflict that can come up in a pastoral transition. We help churches work through the hazards of unresolved issues. We help churches look at the issues that, that, uh, that, that are presenting with mission, with vision. We help churches deal with spiritual malaise that, that can often come up during a pastoral transition. We help churches deal with damaged trust in its leadership. We, we guide churches through a process of learning from the past, what can be learned from what has happened, of acknowledging the reality of the present that needs to be faced, and of turning towards the future and gearing up and making changes necessary to prepare for the next lead pastor, the next steamboat captain who's going to lead the ship, lead the church on the rest of its journey. So my ultimate goal as a transitional pastor in the churches that I serve is that those churches will become stronger and healthier as a result of the transition, that they won't just exist and survive through the transition, that they actually survive as a, or thrive as a result of the transition, and that they will become safe and stable enough to bring in a new senior pastor who will be used mightily by God to bless and grow the church. Well, that's enough about me. We are here to hear from God and His Word, and I hope you brought your Bible today. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, and we'll be primarily in chapter 2, but we'll jump back a little bit into chapter 1. The specific text today, if you're taking notes, is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But before we get to the text, let me, uh, let me introduce this this way. One of my all-time favorite movies, I know it's a little dated now, it's from 2000, 17 years ago, is the movie Gladiator starring Russell Crowe, especially the beginning. If you've seen that movie, you know that that movie opens in the second century as the Roman Empire is on the verge of conquering Germania and expanding into that part of Europe. And the movie, the opening scene is, is of the Roman general, Maximus, Maximus Meridius, played by Russell Crowe. And he is challenging this Roman legion, his troops. They're about to go into battle with the last resisting forces of the German army. And then battle is unleashed. There is a hail of arrows, of flaming arrows through the sky. There is, there's the charge of, of infantry armed with lances. There is charging cavalry. There is, you know, it's a great movie if you like that kind of thing. There is smoke. There is ash. There is lots of blood, but the Romans prevail. Victory is won. 
The Germans are put down. The Roman Empire is expanded. And now it's time for the conquering Roman legion to return to Rome, to the city of Rome. Well, you know if you've seen the movie that the movie is interrupted at this point as, as the hero of the movie, General Maximus Meridius, he's betrayed and he's removed from the scene. And the rest of the movie concerns what happens to him. But if that hadn't happened, if General Maximus had not been betrayed, he would have led that Roman legion, his troops, back to the city of Rome. They would have entered the city of Rome in a Roman custom called a triumphus, a Roman triumphal procession. Now, I realize you may not be able to see this next picture on the screen real clearly. This is an artist's depiction of this Roman custom of a Roman triumphal procession known as a triumphus. Uh, and it doesn't really do it justice, but it's, it's the best that I could find. This was an elaborate affair. Any time a Roman general was successful in expanding the Roman Empire, the Roman Senate would grant to him the honor of this triumphus, this triumphal entry into the city of Rome. They'd enter the city of Rome and go all the way to the center of the city of Rome, to the temple of Jupiter there. The procession was elaborate. Starting out in the procession, like a long parade, were ranks of Roman magistrates and senators. Following them were, was, was a band of trumpeters playing. Following the trumpeters were wagons loaded with the spoils that were captured from the enemy. Following the spoils was a herd of oxen that would be sacrificed when the procession reached the temple of Jupiter. Following the oxen, all the prisoners of war that had been captured and were in chains were forcibly marched along. Following the prisoners were priests of Jupiter, and these priests were carrying burning containers of incense sending that incense out everywhere along the parade route. Following the priests was the victorious Roman general himself. He would ride in a white chariot. He would be pulled by four white horses. He would be arrayed for that that occasion in the dress of a king, including a scepter and a crown. And following the general were all his, his troops sharing in the glory of their general in this procession. That's the image that Paul uses as we look at our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But before we get there, I want to show you this image, this triumphal procession, it's the exact opposite of what we would expect the Apostle Paul to write, considering what he had just been through. Let me take you back briefly to chapter 1. This sets the context of, of what Paul's life has been like leading up to him writing this. In chapter 1, 8 and 9, he's writing about his church planning ministry across what, what we know as present-day Turkey. And he writes that all he had gone through as he made his way through that, that, that province, Asia, caused him to suffer great hardship and pressure that he writes was far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. He writes that he fell under the sentence of death In other words, he wasn't sure he was going to make it out alive. This this hardship was was probably intense persecution from Jews and and, and pagans who opposed the gospel he was preaching and the churches that he was planning. 
You read through Acts chapters 14 and 16 and 17, and you see a lot of that persecution. That's probably the context of what he's referring to here. And then if we skip ahead in chapter 2 to verse 12 and 13, we, we find that he's, he's able to make his way through Asia, and he makes it to the coast of the Aegean Sea, to the city of Troas. And there he's expecting to see his friend, his brother, his partner in ministry, Tro, uh, Titus. And, and Titus was supposed to be there. He had sent Titus on a mission to the church in Corinth that was experiencing severe difficulties and he was expecting Titus to come back and give him a good report. But we read in verse 12 and 13 that Titus was not in Troas when Paul arrived. He says, I had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So Paul is intensely anxious about the well-being of Titus and the situation in the Corinthian church. So as Paul starts to write verses 14, 15, and 16, you would think he would be at a place of spiritual defeat. I mean, we've been there. Life is so hard. The burden is so heavy that, that we feel overwhelmed by, by, by the opposition that, that we're facing. He, he's just narrowly escaped death. He's, he's deathly worried about his friend and about the situation in the church. Yet instead, he pens these words in verse 14, which are the complete opposite of what we might expect. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Here we have a man who has every reason to retreat and hide, to be full of worry and despair. And instead of focusing on the sources of his anxiety, He rejoices in what he knows to be true. And what does he know to be true? The gospel will prevail. The gospel will go forward. God always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. He uses that word triumphus, a form of that word triumphus. We know that he's thinking of this illustration of a Roman triumphal procession. And here's his point. God's the general. God's the victorious general. We who have been saved by Christ, we who have been redeemed, we who belong to to Christ, we are his conquering army, and he will always lead us in triumph. He will always cause the gospel to advance. No matter what challenges we're facing, no matter what setbacks we've experienced, no matter how overwhelming our present situation may seem, God will always cause the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go forward to transform more and more lives. Now let me pause at this moment. I I want to define a very important term. I I don't want to assume that that you understand just because you've been in church maybe for many years what the gospel is. I really want to define for you. I want to drill down on what is the gospel. There's many places we could go to in Scripture Uh, Let me pick one of my favorites. It's not going to be up on the screen, but you can write it down if you want to look it up later. Romans 3, starting with verse 21. This is one of Paul's many descriptions of the gospel. Let me read it to you. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been revealed. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, yet we can be justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Amen. Here's, here's, here's the essence of that. God, is, God calls every one of us to be righteous, to be in a right relationship with Him. God calls every one of us to live in every area of our life in a manner that is consistent with, that maintains that relationship. But what's our reality? We all fail in that. No matter how hard we try to be good, none of us can be righteous in and of our own power. None of us can make ourselves righteous and live up to God's righteous standards in God's eyes because we're all infected by sin. Here's the gospel, though. The gospel is the good news that we can be made righteous, not that we can make ourselves righteous by trying to be a good person, by going to church, by doing all the things that we're told good Christians do. We can't make ourselves righteous, but we can be made righteous by the perfect obedience, by the sacrificial death, and by the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that an unrighteous person like me, like you, can be saved from God's wrath by believing and trusting in Christ's perfect righteousness extended to us. I just want to ask rhetorically this morning, have you believed in in Jesus Christ as as the source of the righteousness that, that God freely offers by His grace? Have you trusted in that? In other words, is your confidence in your own efforts to be good, to make yourself righteous? Or is your confidence, your spiritual confidence, your spiritual trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you that you could not do, that we could not do for ourselves? I hope that's the gospel that you understand. I hope that's the gospel that has gripped your heart as it's gripped mine. If it's not, I encourage you to come forward, pray with someone after the service, talk with someone after the service. Make sure you have embraced the life-saving power of this gospel. Well, this is the gospel, by the way, that Paul says here in our text will always triumph no matter what the circumstances. Really, that's the essence of verse 14. God will always and unfailingly cause his gospel to triumph, to transform more and more lives. If you're like me, it's it's hard to see that sometimes. You know, you watch the news, you see what's happening all around the world, you see terrorism, you see the rise of, of radical Islam, you see just the general godlessness, the growing atheism in our country, and it's hard to believe sometimes that the gospel is advancing. But that's because we don't have God's perspective. We can't see the big picture. Or even when we look within our our local church, sometimes we we have a hard time seeing that the gospel is advancing because we're looking at material, temporal, worldly indicators of that. We're looking at how many people attend. We're looking at how much money is taken in. We're looking at whether buildings are built, whether programs are offered. And not that those things are unimportant, but those things are not the true measure of true gospel advance in a church's ministry. They they may be used by God to accomplish that, but they are not the measure of the advance of the gospel. Why is it that God allows the the gospel to encounter what seems like so much opposition 
So many setbacks. Why is it that God allows a church to go through setbacks and face opposition? The fact that God's children experience setbacks and hardships and afflictions and even death only highlight that the advance of the gospel, it's holy of God. The gospel only advances because God leads that triumphal procession. In fact, I think it's true to say that the gospel is most clearly seen as God works in and through our human weakness. Let me give you a couple examples of that. In 1956, five young missionaries went into the Ecuadorian jungle to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians living there. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint. Their first radio contacts back to the mission station were good. They gave favorable reports. The Indians seemed to be receiving them favorably. But on January 9th, they failed to check in. And a search party a few days later found their bodies in the Curre River, speared to death by those Indians they'd come to bring the gospel to. Is that a tragedy? Yes. Was that the defeat of the gospel? No. As a direct result of the death of those five missionaries, many Aka Indians later heard the gospel and turned to Christ. God caused the gospel to triumph in and through that human weakness, the death of those five young missionaries. Or consider China. When the the nation of China fell under communist rule and became the People's Republic of China in 1949, the new communist government sought to quickly purge China of any vestiges of Christianity. The Maoist Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s left millions of Christians dead or in prison. And even today, even though we don't hear much about it in the mainstream media, The government labels many evangelical churches, Christian churches in China, as cults. And it puts that label on them so that it can prosecute their leaders, so it can shut them down, so it can confiscate their their property. Is this an international outrage? Yes, although we don't hear much about it. Is this the defeat of the gospel? No. In spite of this persecution, The church in China continues to grow. I think we could say it grows even more than it ever was growing before. An average of an estimated 3,000 Chinese people come to faith in Jesus Christ every day. The gospel continues to advance. God causes his gospel to advance even in and through that persecution. And then let me come real close to home. It's no different here at Central Church. This church has experienced great blessing and success over its last century of existence. Yet from the little I know, the last few years have brought difficult events that for many of you may seem to be a series of setbacks. But here's the message that that, that I believe I'm to bring to you this morning from this text as, as as you ponder those, as you wrestle with those setbacks. God has and will continue to lead you in triumph in and through these difficult circumstances and setbacks. 
He will cause the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance in and through Central Church to claim the hearts of many who do not know Him in this community and beyond. His grace will unfailingly triumph over even human weakness here at Central Church because the advance of the gospel is holy of God. Why does God choose to work this way? Uh, Why is it that it is in and through human weakness and even in and through human suffering and tragedy that God advances the gospel? I think Paul touches on this back in chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, when he writes that the great hardship and pressure that he suffered happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. See, here's what I think Paul is saying to us. The gospel isn't for self-reliant types. The gospel isn't for those of us who think that we can make it happen by our abilities, by our efforts, by our own self-will. We may think we have the, the, the facilities, we may think we have the resources and the programming to be impactful Christians and an impactful church, but nothing will happen unless we follow God's leading. That triumphal procession in that illustration is not led by a pastor. It's not led by elders. It's not led by staff. It's not led by dynamic lay people. It is led by God. He leads the triumphal procession of the gospel. And so let me just be very blunt and and, and frank with you. I I think the truth here is that God often uses, sovereignly uses our human weakness and our tragedy to strip us of our self-reliance, to turn our attention back to Him, to His resurrection power. That's what advances the gospel. So let me ask you again rhetorically, could that be part of what God has and has been doing and is doing during this season of of the life of Central Church? Could he be stripping you of your self-reliance to turn your focus to him and his resurrection power because he wants to advance the gospel through Central Church? How does the the gospel of Christ advance? Look at uh, the following verses in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We'll look at the second half of, of verse 14 first. He leads us in Christ. Through us, God spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. This image of the fragrance here, again, it comes from that triumphal procession. Remember that in the middle of the procession, there are the priests. And what are the priests carrying? They're, they're carrying incense burner. And those incense burners have incense burning in them, and that smell is just pervading. One of my three sons was, when he was in high school, on an incense kick for a while. And he'd go into his room. There was no drugs involved. He'd go into his room, and he'd burn incense, and that would just leak out of the room and pervade the rest of the house. I'm glad it was just a thing, and he's done with it and passed it. But you know, if you've, if you've, if you've experienced that, you know how powerful incense can be. This incense that, that, that the priests were burning as they marched through the triumphal procession, it filled the nostrils of everybody marching in the procession. It filled the nostrils of everybody watching this procession. So with that image in mind, what is this fragrance as we think about the spread of the gospel? Paul says right here, 
It's the knowledge of Him, of Jesus Christ. In other words, we come to know the God of the gospel as we meet His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Colossians that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. All God's fullness dwells in Christ. That's that's the knowledge of Him is that fragrance. Here's maybe another way of saying it. If you have been transformed by the gospel, if you have been made righteous by God's grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus' atoning sacrifice, you have a new smell. You have a new fragrance about you. People become more and more aware as you're around that something is changing, something has been changing in your life. What, what is that? That's the knowledge of Christ and how that is changing you as he, as he brings you in as a follower and you grow in obedience to him. Now think back to that Roman processional. What would that fragrance of that burning incense smell like to, uh, to the general soldiers who are marching in the rear? It must have smelled wonderful. It must have been the smell of glory, of triumph, of victory. But what did that incense probably smell like to those prisoners of war marching in chains to to what they knew was going to be either a dungeon or to execution? It must have been a hideous stench. Well, that's that's what Paul picks up on the image in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2 when he writes... We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, to those who are perishing, that that fragrance, it's the smell, the stench of death. To the other, it's the fragrance of life. As the fragrance of the gospel spreads, all who smell it, it's either perceived as life-giving or it's perceived as deathly and poisonous. That's what Paul experienced in the book of Acts. Everywhere he preached the same message. In some places, it was received as a gift of life. In other places, it was rejected and even violently opposed. Again, let me make an application to to Central Church and what you find yourself right in the middle of. The way that Central Church, collectively as a church... And each of you individually, the way that you seek to live out the gospel in the midst of this difficult, challenging time that you're going through, the way that you do that has a great impact on whether your Christian faith smells like the stench of death or the fragrance of life to the community around you. How do we live out the gospel? How do we live out the gospel in the midst of disagreements, in the midst of stressors, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of of disputes. Well, Scripture speaks many places to that, but one rises to the top of my mind. Paul says in Ephesians 4, addressing believers who are wrestling with issues with each other, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you all. And be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. That's living out the gospel, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of disputes and disagreements. As you allow the Holy Spirit to grow this kind of fruit in you, even in the midst of disagreements and conflict, you will exude to the community around you 
the fragrance of life. As you move away from that, as you forget to live out the gospel, even in the midst of the challenges you're going through, the community around you smells the stench of death. And they say, see, I know that's what Christians were like anyway. We are to walk through in a way that lives out the gospel, even in the midst of our weakness and our challenges. Let me close with this. From the little I know of what you've been going through here at Central Church, there have been difficulties. There has been pain. I know that, that there has been some division. I know that some people have been hurt. I know that some people have even left. So I'm not here this morning to simply put a spiritual veneer over everything. There are issues that need to be addressed. There may be changes that need to be made. But brothers and sisters, this is not defeat. This is not the gospel being defeated. The triumphal progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been stopped. It's not even been slowed by anything that has happened or is happening here at Central Church. Why? Because this procession, it's not led by your pastors. It's not led by your elders. It's not led by any of you. It's led by God. Verse 14, he will always cause his gospel to triumph in and through all events, all circumstances in our lives. God will spread the message of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. He will be victorious. Christ will continue to build his church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are our victorious general. And we who have been saved by you, we who are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are your loyal troops. And Lord, this morning I ask for my brothers and sisters here at Central Church, I ask that you'd give us eyes to see more clearly. Give us eyes to see more clearly how great and holy you are. To see that nothing surprises you. To see that nothing is an obstacle or a setback to you. Lord, give us eyes to see that you sovereignly work in and through our human failings, our afflictions, and our losses. That your grace is so unfailingly adequate for every conceivable situation, no matter how threatening and how destructive it may seem to us in our limited vision. Lord, use the painful interruptions of our lives to break us from relying on anything and anyone other than you. Out of our brokenness, spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. May we share in the glory of your triumph when one day every knee is bowed and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Let me leave you with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.